her challenges throughout the group that she was discussing with us, nobody else could really relate to. And then we became friends through the group. And after the group, she was having some additional challenges and ended up seeking a lot of mental health support. And it was something that yeah, nobody else was experiencing and it just seemed a bit different. And then she ended up coming out saying, so the people I've been talking to think that I might be autistic. I just saw her have that big aha moment of oh, everything makes sense now. This is why I'm feeling this way. This is why these things are challenging for me. And this is why it seems different to what everybody else in the group was feeling. Welcome to Princess and the Pea podcast, a show where we talk about all things neurodiversity with those who know it best, lived experience, of course. I'm your host, Annie Crow, and I'm an autistic ADHDer. I started this podcast so I could share meaningful conversations that explore the lives of neurodivergent people like myself. We talk about everything from employment to healthcare, education, parenting, relationships, mental health and more, but all with a neurospicy lens. Before we kick off, I just wanted to add a quick content warning for little ears. This podcast will be discussing mental health issues and serious adult business. So chuck on your headphones and grab a cup of tea. And as Bluey likes to say, let's do this. Today's guest is Claudia Molino, an occupational therapist who graduated from University of South Australia with a Bachelor's of Occupational Therapy and has been working at Autism SA ever since. She also briefly worked for Inclusive Sport SA doing aquatic therapy, which she has now helped set up at Autism SA. Very exciting. She's a mama to a beautiful little boy who's only a, a little bit older than my toddler. And she just so happened to be in a mother's group with a woman who found out she was autistic while they were trying to navigate the roller coaster that is being a new parent together. Very handy to have your own occupational therapist mate in your mother's group while you figure that stuff out. And Claudia reached out to me when she heard me on Beyond the Bump a few months ago and has been working towards setting up some supports at Autism SA for autistic mums, which is fantastic. This is one of the areas that I am very, very passionate about, having recently had my own child and having to navigate self-advocacy in the health system as a disabled autistic woman. So I was very excited to hear from her. And yeah, I wanted to put a little caveat in that there is some ableist language, which is completely to be expected because Claudia, like all health professionals, was trained in the medical model of disability, which is deficit-based. But if we don't start talking more to the medical community and help them on this journey of really embracing the neurodiversity paradigm, 
then we won't see change. So I never want to not speak to people because I think they are not 100% neurodiversity affirming, if that's even a real thing, because I have my own internalized ableism from living 28 years without realizing I was disabled and autistic. And we all do to some extent. So just be mindful as just a couple of little things and Claudia means nothing by them. She is a product of her environment, which is the health system, and we're trying to change that. And to do that, we need to work together and have patience and respect for one another. So that's what we're going to do. We really need more people like Claudia who are willing to have these conversations and to learn from our community. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Claudia. Thank you so much for being here. It's so exciting to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited. Oh, me too. You're actually um, one of the first people that reached out to me after my very first podcast interview with Beyond the Bump. I love those girls, which I listened to a lot when I was pregnant with my son a while ago now. And I was so excited to have an allied health professional reach out to me, which surprisingly happens a lot these days, which is great. Because the only people that had reached out in my other advocacy work were neurodivergent people like myself. And even though I love talking to my neurokin, I know that we desperately need more allies to help create more safe and neurodiversity affirming healthcare. So thank you for reaching out. Yes, I listen to their podcast all the time as well. And I was so excited when I saw they were doing an episode interviewing you and I was on maternity leave at the time and I actually was researching the area and so when you spoke I thought you just gave such a beautiful lived experience journey and I thought I have to reach out to you to find yeah to hear more about your story um, and to hopefully collaborate on some work together and here we are. We are indeed yeah it was a bit of a scary interview to be honest because I didn't have any prep and they asked their followers the day before if they had any questions for a, a neurodivergent mum and they just let them come and I which I love I love but I was not used to explaining things to an audience that wasn't super familiar with more of the nuance around the neurodiversity paradigm and I guess actually autistic views of our identity and culture oh you gave lots of good research and statistics Oh, no, you were great. You gave, yeah, really good research and statistics. And I was wondering if you were prepared or if you just knew all of that. But it was, yeah, a very in-depth interview. I thought it was great. Oh, thank you. That's so kind. I, yeah, no, it was, a, it was a cold run. They got a lot of questions and just picked the popular ones and we just went for it, which was terrifying. <laughs> yes. I, I asked a question and I was wondering if they were going to answer it. And when they didn't, that's when I thought, oh, I have to reach out and and ask a little bit more. Oh, yeah. What was your question? My question was, if you had a mums group full of other autistic mums, what would you have liked to be the mums group to be about? Oh, I love that question. Yeah. And I found it interesting to see what the listeners had asked, what their questions were, and sort of gauging what their baseline level of knowledge was. If it was just what the general population was thinking it would look and feel like, or if it was other mums who might be autistic that were asking the questions. I found that really interesting as well to see what people were thinking. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's always interesting to see what sort of 
um, knowledge people have, especially on autism, which is so misrepresented in the general populace and even in the health system, really. That's what I guess surprised me a lot Mm -hmm. because the questions were very basic stuff that if you're aware of or in the neurodivergent community, you generally have a much deeper understanding of some of the issues and strengths that autistic people have and how we can present, especially because oftentimes it's not obvious at all, especially for women and girls. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Especially with women, you know, there can be the extra additional masking things, which makes things go even more unnoticed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, you reached out because you met a woman who found out she was autistic in your own mother's group. So how old is your bubba now? He is 19 months old now. Amazing. My little guy is 16 months old. Oh, wow. So they're only a few months apart. Yeah, so cute. Oh, amazing. Um, So yeah, I wanted to ask about your neurodivergent mate and how you met and her diagnosis and what that was like watching her go on that diagnostic journey, especially as an occupational therapist as well. That medical process would have been a lot while she was dealing with a a newborn. That would have been fun. Yeah, yeah, of course. I met her through the whole journey. So she was a member of my mum's group that you get set up with after you have a mum. I'm not sure what it's like in Canberra, but there's, um, we have CAFs groups children and family health services and they're just um, like a four-week course run by the government Um, so she was part of that group and her challenges throughout the group that she was discussing with us nobody else could really relate to and then we became friends through the group and after the group she was having some additional challenges and ended up seeking a lot of mental health support and it was something that yeah nobody else was experiencing and it just seemed a bit different And then she ended up coming out saying, so the people I've been talking to think that I might be autistic. And I said, oh, what do you, what do you think about that? And she said, well, I always sort of joked about it in my life. My mum always sort of um, might've guessed, or we just made jokes about it through my life. And then she thought maybe actually that is what's going on. And so she went through the process of getting a diagnosis and I just saw her have that big aha moment of oh, everything makes sense now. This is why I'm feeling this way. This is why these things are challenging for me. And this is why it seems different to what everybody else in the group was feeling. Oh, that's so great. It must be such a special thing to witness her neurodivergence awakening. It's beautiful. Yeah, it really is. Because usually in my line of work, I see people that have been diagnosed either in early intervention or they've been diagnosed for a long amount of um, time. So I don't often get to see the process of, yeah, somebody going through that. And the initial setting up of NDIS as well, I haven't been a part of that before. So seeing what that was like for an autistic adult to go through that process really opened my eyes to, yeah, how challenging that process is and how much support and self-advocacy you need. Yeah, it's it's really challenging and way more complex than it needs to be really yeah yeah I've heard of obviously the parent perspective from my clients but seeing what it was like for her yeah so I've really gone through the whole the whole journey with her and she's in a really good place now with lots of good support so there's a oh that's so amazing to hear yeah Um, and and you know quite quite a quick transition really considering she also had a newborn and motherhood to get used to and going through the the medical diagnostic process can be very emotionally draining because 
it's so deficit based. And then on top of that, to try to navigate NDIS and get not only the right supports, but supports from professionals who are actually neurodiversity affirming and, Mm -hmm. you know, really placed to to set Mm -hmm. her environment up for her and not, you know, focused on the more toxic behavioral intervention that really goes against the the neurodiversity paradigm and accepting that our brains are just different and that that's okay and to really support our environment which is so important when you're a new mum and you've got a lot going on <laughs> and then of course to try and figure out the NDIS mm-hmm. and I mean that's not the most straightforward process right <laughs> No, nothing in NDIS is. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Nothing is. But, I mean, especially at the beginning when the process is so overwhelming and complicated and there's just not a lot of accessible guidance on what to do and you've really got to rely on getting decent allied health professionals to walk you through you know, all the requirements and, and the possibilities of what supports you can get and and what might work for you because you're just going in blindsided otherwise. And, yeah, you've already got a newborn and that's just a lot going on. Yes, exactly. And that's the thing that I was thinking through my whole – the whole time I've been a mum, even when I wasn't a mum, I'd be going out into the community and often think, I wonder what this would feel like if – for my autistic clients. I wonder what this experience would be like for them. So then now going out as a mum when I leave the house and I was thinking, wow, I know the effort it took for me to come to this mum's group today, how I had to think of what to pack in the back, how many feeds he would need, how many nappies and backup plans in case there's explosions and all those sorts of things. And then I thought, wow, I wonder what that would have felt like for her. And going to regular appointments for your baby or for yourself and taking a child along with those is so challenging. So I can't imagine what it must have been like going to an NDIS appointment where you're having to talk about yourself and your deficits and what help you might need and being asked so many in-depth questions about can you do this, what level of help support do you need with this and asking what types of services you might need when you've never heard of some of those services and coming away from the meeting and thinking did I remember anything that was said in that meeting or what have I signed up for what's going to be in my plan what are my goals yeah the struggle is real like what did that mean are they going to listen to what I said what are the outcomes going to be where do I go from here and they're just some of the questions going through your head and you know to be that sleep deprived Mm -hmm. (laughs) ouch yeah I mean one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the show was this this story of a an autistic woman having a child and you know all of her systems and methods of coping kind of fall apart because you've got this huge disruptor or baby entering your life it's a very common time mm-hmm. for a lot of women to get diagnosed and to mm-hmm. figure out that they're neurodivergent i actually felt quite lucky that i knew before i was pregnant thinking that that would be some kind of an advantage going into pregnancy and motherhood, you know, because I had the access to getting support mm. and making sure that my needs were met and that the transition was smooth. Uh, parenthood is a hard transition for everyone, but to add neurodivergence 
and be living in a world that isn't made for you, it's that much harder. Mm. However, I didn't end up feeling very advantaged because there was not a lot of information out there on being autistic and pregnant. There's, you know, there was one book written by an autistic doula who'd had five kids, but it was very much autobiographical. A great book, but not the information that I was looking for. And there was a couple of YouTube videos of autistic women sharing their experience being pregnant. Mm. But when I Googled being autistic and pregnant, the only thing that came up was hundreds of articles on how to avoid having an autistic child. Spoiler alert, you can't. It's genetic. Mostly. I would argue wholly, but I think some people are still in denial. Anyway, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a medical professional. Make your own assumptions and opinions. Do your research. But it was just horrific. Imagine reading articles on how to prevent a human being born that's like you. Yes. It's just horrid. Or how to be a parent to an autistic child rather than anything about the mother being autistic herself. Yes, that's what I was coming up with when I was researching. Yeah, ridiculous. I thought, maybe I'm searching this incorrectly. Oh, no, there's just no research out there about what pregnancy and birth and, yeah. After it got me thinking about there was not even any qualitative data about what the pregnancy or birthing experience is like for autistic mums. There was a few studies in the last two years that I could find that had some emerging comments and things in there about women. And I thought that's a good a good start to highlight that there is a, a gap in this area. OTs, we focus so much on sensory regulation and understanding what's happening with your body and the world around you. And so pregnancy is something that changes your whole sense of identity. There's so many body changes happening. Your whole interoception system, everything is changing. The, the feelings of hunger that you had before, now your stomach's in a different location and so that feels different and things are pressing on your bladder and yeah all the changes yeah yeah lots of body changes so I was really surprised that there was no OT evidence in the area as well given that it's probably the biggest one of the biggest sensory changes your body can go through from all through pregnancy and then giving birth and then after birth it's a a mammoth transformation in Physically and in your identity as well. Yeah, absolutely. And hormonally and mentally. Yes. Yeah, all the things. And, yes. <laughs> you know, interoception is so complicated. I find it really fascinating. Yeah, but what really upsets me is the lack of resources and research and information on being autistic and pregnant. Mm-hmm. Like what some of the sensory challenges might be, the routine changes, the energy levels, the sleep changes, everything. It's such a big shift Mm. to go through. And, you know, having to talk to people who might want to touch your belly or ask you invasive questions that you really don't want to Mm. answer, but when you don't like navigating, you know, that social area of what's appropriate, what do they really want to know versus... Is this going to be an overshare or are they going to judge me because I'm making a decision that Mm -hmm. might not fit their norms? Yes, I hadn't thought of that. Yes, that's so true. People do ask you questions when you're in the supermarket, of course. I was very lucky because I got pregnant not long after COVID began and it took away so much pressure for me to deal with the outside world uh, Mm. because life mostly went online. Mm. And I wonder what that's like for people that are not pregnant during a pandemic and they are out and about and in different seasons as well, if it's in summer and you're you're forced to wear clothing that's 
perhaps a little bit tighter or more revealing and you can't hide the, yeah, the bump as opposed to in winter. You might be able to get through six months of pregnancy with nobody asking intrusive questions. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, obviously I'm just speaking for myself. I'm sure there are plenty of autistic women that love being asked questions and love their belly being touched and such. I'm I'm not one of them. Mm-hmm. But we are all diverse and unique. Yeah, but I mean, you know, everyone has an opinion in this space, you know, on whether you should find out the gender or what type of birth you might want and all the things. It's it's hard to navigate and you know, one of the ways I like to manage my own anxiety is through research to help me make informed decisions and to be aware of, you know, what others are doing and making sure I'm up with the latest information on child safety and development and all of those things. But more importantly, it's so important to be able to talk to other, you know, autistic mothers or disabled mothers who truly understand what we're going through and I was desperate for that when I was pregnant. So I've created a pregnancy disability support group on Facebook so that all disabled moms can find our own community that truly understand each other and, Mm -hmm. you know, can celebrate our disability pride while simultaneously acknowledging that it's hard living in a world that wasn't made for you, a world that often doesn't know how to celebrate you or value you. And I mean, there there are obviously disability pregnancy support groups on Facebook. I'm not, I'm not the starter here, but okay. uh, I made one for Australia, and I think that's important because we have our own health system and our own government and things that are very different from the places we generally turn to, which I guess is most commonly the US and the UK. But yeah, I just thought it was really important to have that community that's so beautiful what a nice idea to start that oh thanks yeah no I mean it's very new uh any autistic ADHD neurodivergent disabled pregnant women out there I'll link it in the show notes so you can join our little community and hopefully find what I was really desperate for Mm -hmm. but yeah I mostly just prefer online socializing to be honest for many many reasons but you know with a newborn even more so like getting myself organized when I'm sleep deprived and have a whole new bunch of stuff that I need to remember and I'm worried about, you know, a crying baby in the car or ruining a routine or whatever, let alone the more, I guess, neurotypical norms that are expected to to be met when you go out. You know, having to look appropriate and concentrate and pay attention and say the right things and not step on anyone's toes and all of those things like this there's a lot of reasons why it can be stressful and then on top of that to have you know a little baby or even toddler it's it's hard yes I could imagine in that group environment then you might spend the next few minutes thinking about what you've said and overthinking that and then you might miss out on on what the group was saying and then you're a little bit behind and that that loop keep happening whereas if you're at home and you're in you know comfy clothes and you've got things around you that help you to feel regulated and you can mute yourself if you want to you can turn the camera off and have a break if you need and not having to get to the location as well I think you don't have to travel to get there and if you've been hit with traffic or something on the way that's added added an extra layer and I think what you were saying with with you were saying earlier with pregnancy how you're forced into these more uncomfortable social situations where somebody might 
have commented on your stomach and then all of a sudden this baby has caused you to be in a really uncomfortable situation by they need their nappy changed and now you're forced to have this interaction with this person that you didn't want to have and previously you may have been able to avoid that and then after that there's no reprieve you get into the car you have to buckle them in they might be upset might be hungry you get to physio you've got to get the pram out so there's all these extra things that are happening that previously your coping strategies before being a mum, you might have been able to apply a strategy do some some mindfulness breathing while you were walking some positive self-talk and you would have been okay and then this baby's put you in this uncomfortable situation and your cup is already full of of stress of extra input of you've used your executive functioning team before you've even walked into the room yeah exactly it's yeah it adds up it adds up really quickly and you know I mean those kind of social environments I don't enjoy at the best of times let alone when I've got all of this stuff on top of it I mean many of these mums groups are with like at least I think the smallest group I went to was maybe four women and usually you don't really know them very well before you go so that unfamiliarity the uncertainty Mm. the like it just it's 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 compounding right yes and and to add on top of that you know not wanting to say the wrong thing or step on anyone's toes Mm -hmm. you know to have to sit there and and listen to that when I'm like I could be at home watching my favorite show listen to my favorite thing reading a book having a nap while my baby naps all the things that would be so much better than this stressful situation. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I actually did sort of like speed dating for mums groups. I went to a, a few different ones just to try and get a vibe of which ones were more neurodivergent friendly, let's say. And by that, I mean non-judgmental, supportive, open, inclusive, <laughs> like all that anyone wants in a mother's group, right? Mm, Exactly. And if I think of my first year as a mum, as you were saying earlier, reading all of the evidence and information, you know, you're trying to do make the best choice for your family. And then there's so many things that happen when you're out and about that you get judgment on, whether it's breastfeeding in public, that's bad. Or whether it's someone seeing you bottle feed in public, oh, that's bad. Or you, you're letting your baby cry in the pram versus you're holding your baby too much. There's all these extra social things that happen as a new mum anyway that I, that was making me think as well of what would this be like for someone who finds these social situations extra challenging if I'm already feeling challenged by them. That must feel huge, yeah. And then I was thinking where do these autistic mums go to debrief about this? Where do they go to talk to someone else and say, oh, I was in this cafe and someone said this to me and you know, I'd already had a, a bad morning and I could smell some somebody's eggs smelt horrible and I was already upset by that. Where do they go to debrief? And that's why I was surprised there's if you don't have another autistic mum friend, how do you yeah, how do you talk to somebody about that? If you don't have a psychologist, if you're not diagnosed yet, you know, all these extra questions. Yeah, totally. I mm. it's interesting because I have so many autistic friends these days and we have so much fun talking, no matter whether it's messaging or online or in person. You know, we can info dump our special interests on each other and, yeah, that's wonderful. you know, skip the small talk and ask silly questions. And it's just such a safe environment that removes all that social pressure 
that's in a lot of groups. But it's hard because when you open up to a group, when you, you're in a new group and you're testing the waters and, you know, I, I have a go-to move where I'll dabble something that I'm worried about and I'll say it in a mm. kind of a not too big of a deal way and I'll see what reaction I get. And a lot of the time, you know, if they're going to dismiss me when I've barely told them a half truth. Mm-hmm. Or we all feel like that or oh, that's just being a mum. Yeah, exactly. Mm. then there's no way I'm going to get vulnerable and and open up with my true feelings and I'm more likely to mask. Whereas if they are really kind and like, oh, yeah, that sounds really hard or, you know, I mean, for autistic ADHDers, a lot of us show empathy through explaining a similar experience. So if you say like, oh, my dog died, you know, I would say – oh, that sucks, my dog died a few years ago, it was so sad. And a lot of people hear that and think, that's really selfish of you to bring up your your dog dying. Mm. This has gotten morbid, don't know why I chose that example. My my neighbour's dog died recently and it was very heartbreaking. Um, and some people will respond to that and say, why are you making it about you? But in neurodivergent mm-hmm. language, and I mean, I'm generalising kind of, uh, interested to know what, what the, any neurodivergent people listening mm. think, but... Uh, my neurodivergent friends we all talk about this and mm-hmm. that's a way to show that we understand and we, we're feeling your pain and and it's hard when you're in a mother's group talking about all the struggles that come with motherhood when some people have different levels of struggle and different levels of what is difficult and what isn't and yeah it's 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 hard which is why I'm so passionate about, you know, the neurodivergent community because it, it is so important to mm. have people in your corner and, and to have, you know, people from your own culture. You know, being autistic, it's an identity. It's a culture. It's not a disorder. It's not a diagnosis, no matter what the medical model of disability says. It's, it's a different brain, mm-hmm. just like it's a different language or a different sexuality. You find your people, you find your identity and you connect and you get each other. And that's so important for maternal mental health. So important. Yeah. But like, I mean, you've heard of the double empathy problem, which is that basically neurodivergent people aren't actually bad at communicating. It's actually just that they're different communicators to neurotypical. So there's a study done, and this has been backed up over the years, that they had multiple groups and they did kind of like Chinese whispers, um, mm. you know, where you whisper in one ear and it goes along the group and by the end of it, does it sound anything like the start or gobbledygook, yes. you know? And the neurodivergent group that was all neurodivergent and the neurotypical group that was all neurotypical did equally well yeah. with getting the message to go through and be correct like as close to correct at the end but when they put the group t- a group together with a combination of neurodivergent and neurotypicals that's where the problems came up because they had a different way of communicating mm-hmm. right so we're not we're not disordered we're different the problem is is we're the minority so people think that we're the disordered ones but we're not. Mm. Anyway, I was really lucky because I had my cousin uh, who's a few years older than me and she had two children a few years before me and she is also autistic. So she was, you know, she was my person and it was just so helpful to have someone who was going through a similar life experience and really got me 
it was really helpful. Yeah. And I was going to ask you if it sounds like even you having one person in your corner through this journey was monumental. And I'm wondering for somebody who perhaps wasn't diagnosed yet and they were in a mum's group and they said something like you did to test the waters and if someone dismissed that and then if they took that to their GP and that was also sort of dismissed or perhaps misdiagnosed for something else or the people that were running the mum's group just thought, hmm, I don't really know what that answer meant or what she was meaning by that. And I'm wondering if, if you've been dismissed three or four times and you're going home thinking, well, obviously people aren't thinking about this the same way that I am. Something's going on here. And, yeah, am I am I crazy? Am I the only one feeling like this? And I was wondering what your thoughts were about the misdiagnosis of um, postnatal depression before women might get diagnosed with autism after becoming a mum, if you think that's something that often happens. Yeah, I mean, I'm not current on the statistics, but the Senate inquiry that came out in March this year talks about the percentages of postnatal anxiety or perinatal mental health issues in autistic women or AFAB individuals, and it's ridiculously high. Um and that's just in the ones we know are autistic. So I think the off the top of my head, I think it was something like 40% of autistic women experience prenatal depression and as high as 60% experience postnatal depression. And that's compared to the general population, which is only about 12%. That's ridiculous. Uh, and I'm not saying that if you have postnatal depression, you're autistic, but... I'm not saying you're not, you know. I think that it's definitely something that we should be trying to identify, definitely. Mostly so that these women can get the support and help Mm. and understanding of their own identity that they truly deserve. Mm. I would have wanted to know. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's, it's a big problem that these women are not getting the supports that they need the disability accommodations to help transition to parenthood and beyond uh, because most of them are unidentified. Yes. I was surprised when I went into my six-week screening that they didn't even check my anxiety levels. It was just a basic depression questionnaire. Yes, you fill out the questionnaire and they they tell you yay or nay if you've got depression or not. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But Like it was just depression and not anxiety. What about anxiety? I know so many of my law friends have had postnatal anxiety, some diagnosed, some not. And it was just a questionnaire on depression. How is that not checking both or or even doing the one that has all three, stress, depression and anxiety? Like it was very surprising. And the other thing that they did was ask my husband to leave the room, which I was not very comfortable with because he is my support person and helps me when I'm distressed and understands how to help mm-hmm. me and how to calm me down when I'm getting distressed or if I'm needing different communication. And, I mean, I understand the policy behind it and it's so important to make sure no abuse and such is happening. But at the same time, to remove an autistic person's support can be pretty traumatic and especially when I mean my case in particular I have had a lot of medical trauma and I've seen a lot of doctors that gaslit me and you know have belittled me and infantilized me over the years 
and I mean, this is just my experience as someone who was in a car crash early in my 20s and had to have multiple surgeries and such. I've, I've probably had, you know, and I also have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. So I've had a lot more time with the health profession than anyone ever, ever deserves to suffer through. Um, so it was really traumatic for me. And I, I understand why, but I think the thing that, that I think about with this example and also with how the hospital responded to me, you know, accommodating my needs as, as someone with a history of sexual assault, but not knowing how to accommodate my autistic needs. What I think about is why can't we have standardized training for health professionals to understand the support needs of autistic individuals, or at least what to ask for, what to look out for, literally anything. If, if we did half as much as what we do for very important things like sexual assault and domestic violence, which is so fantastic, that's come a long way and obviously still has a long way to go. But if we did that type of thing, you know, for autistic women or autistic people in, in general, then we'd probably live longer. We have a quite a shorter lifespan and I'm pretty confident that a lot of that's around the amount of stress we live through because we are fundamentally misunderstood and neglected in our disability needs. So to answer your question, yeah, I, I do think that there would probably be many women who are autistic and don't realize it and are diagnosed with postnatal depression first or anxiety. And, you know, I do think that that's slowly changing. I know that, you know, even though the stats are still 80% of autistic women at age 18 are undiagnosed, the age is lowering, but it's very slow and it needs to get quicker. And not only do we need to identify them earlier, but we really need to get the right supports, the right understanding all in place because what's the point of a diagnosis if nothing comes from it? And I'm not talking necessarily about the right therapeutic supports, but more societal understanding of what it is to be autistic or neurodivergent and acceptance to be different. And this is where the social model of disability really needs to take a front seat to the medical model because the medical model is leaving women to be diagnosed only after the fact that they are suffering so severely that they've got multiple other mental illness diagnoses like anxiety, depression, PTSD or misdiagnoses. Yes, and I think that's what that's what worries me, I think, is that these women are ending up in, they're either not being diagnosed until they're in a really, really severe mental state or, yeah, or something else has happened that someone's gone, well, we need to look a little bit deeper here. And my friend had to get to a really bad place before she was able to get diagnosed. And so seeing for her, wow, you had to get to that place before before anything was done about this. And I think, you know, it's it's hard enough. You get sent home from hospital with this new little baby. You get a couple of checkups and a four-week group and that's it. You're off on your merry way and you're supposed to know what to do. Um, and so it's not surprising that so many women neurotypical or neurodivergent do get postnatal depression and anxiety. But then I think, yeah, if you if you didn't have this self-awareness like you did of having a diagnosis and having at least a little bit of support going into that, I, I cannot imagine what some of these women are going through and what sort of state they have to get to before they reach a diagnosis and then go through the process of getting 
support. And if that's through NDIS, it's a little bit timely. If it's not through NDIS, having to pay for these things out of pocket when you're probably not back at work yet, there might already be financial stresses. Yeah, so there's the extra the extra compounding layers. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's a lot. It's a lot all at once and it's a lot if you don't have that, that privilege. Yes, exactly. That so few of us have of truly understanding and accepting our brains. And my son, he was a relatively easy baby and the first nine months was really hard. Between the sleep deprivation, which, you know, sleep's always been so important for my mental health, to the endless transitions from Mm -hmm. having to lift their head, to lift themselves, to roll over, to sit up, to crawl to introduce solids and shifting away from milk and, you know, changing clothes every five minutes. (laughs) The executive functioning of having to organize clothes and clean clothes endlessly. Yes. That's a lot. Exactly. And then they grow out of the clothes and you have to think, okay, they need new clothes. And you get to the shop and you're like, was it T-shirts they needed or pants? And then you end up with 10 pairs of pants and two T-shirts. It's a hot mess. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's hard for everyone, but... When you have executive functioning challenges and sensory issues and, you know, aversion to change and love of sameness, which we all know babies don't love. I mean, well, yeah, a lot of babies do love routine and sameness, but some babies just throw it out the window. And I think that would be one of the hardest things, even people that have two children and one being different to the other. Yeah, definitely. We're new mums, so we don't have to worry about two children just yet. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) And that's what got me thinking with the OT role is we help people through different transitions through life. If it's going from kindy to primary school and then going from primary school to high school and we, we help navigate those changes and we have a lot of time to prepare for those changes and able to support for months before we transition to primary school. And then when you're a mum and all of a sudden your child goes from sitting on the floor still to now they can crawl around and get into things and you have to make that transition and adjust to that and learn all these new skills basically overnight. And even if you've got supports around you, that's still your whole world has changed overnight. Your schedule has changed. The things they can access has changed. The extra things you have to think about in terms of safety have changed. Yeah, so I was looking into what the OT role is. I thought, oh, there must be some guidelines about how OTs support new mums. No, nothing. Yeah, now you have to make them, Claudia. Exactly. (laughs) This is why I got so passionate about this topic because I thought, this is where OTs could help. Oh, there's nothing out there that's, that specifies what we can do to help, but it seems like such an OT area. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you guys literally help autistic kids constantly with sensory issues and transitions and executive functioning challenges, all the things. Why wouldn't all of those things be so well-placed to support autistic mothers and fathers Mm -hmm. to transition to parenthood or any life transition Uh, you know I think it's something that in the future I really hope that there's a lot more OTs supporting autistic adults and especially autistic mothers through that maternal transition this kind of help should be included in all access to healthcare. I went in for a PCR the other day to the sensory clinic and they had no support workers, no OTs, literally no one 
except the usual nurses and doctors who had no idea how to support an autistic person. We really need to make sure that disabled people are supported. You know, you, you, I'm an autistic person when I give birth. I'm an autistic person when I see the rheumatologist. I'm an autistic person when I get a pap smear. You can't separate my disability. So we need to accommodate it. So this is so important and we really need more information on how to make those accommodations and to stop allowing our environment to disable us. Yeah, and I couldn't really find much information. There's a little bit of emerging OT roles in America I could find where they were helping with um, with breastfeeding and some of the executive functioning skills and a little bit into some of the mental health OTs with postpartum depression research and um, yeah, like setting up ergonomic feeding positions and things. So there was a little bit of emerging role happening in America, but that's as far as I could see. I'm still upskilling myself in the area of I, I work with a lot of age ranges, but I have recently, I've been there for five years, and I've recently been working a lot with adults and teenagers. Um, so it is an interest area of mine. So I felt like I had some skills in the area, and it's yeah, things that I would help other adults with. So I don't understand why there's not a specific skill set for postnatal maternal health. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. This needs to, Mm. this really needs to be addressed. And I really hope that in the near future, this becomes normal to focus on supporting autistic people in the health system. It'd be great. (laughs) So in saying that, How are you taking action and helping my vibrant community out? Can you tell us some more about the program you're developing? Yes, absolutely. So we, yeah, we could talk about the challenges of being a mum forever, but then I thought, what do we, what do I do about this? Now I know too much. I have to do something about it. I can't just sit on this. Um, So I have designed and developed an online autistic mums group that Autism SA will be running and it's going to be an evidence-based 10-week program where there will be a multidisciplinary team so run by myself and then there'll also be a guest social worker, a guest support coordinator, a guest early intervention and speech therapist so yeah a multi-D approach where predominantly mums can come to connect and just form a community with other like-minded mums but also teaching and giving some education about some strategies and managing your sensory regulation, some executive functioning tips on how to tackle tackle life a little bit easier. Yeah, um, I think one of another good things to share was some mum hacks within the group of what so other people might have had the same sensory challenges as you and being able to share those hacks. So I remember listening on I think it was another podcast. It was my friend that was saying bathing her daughter when she was a baby in the baby bath. She couldn't understand why that was so challenging for her. And she found out that never before had she had to submerge her arm to her elbow in warm water. When you're in the shower, it's just trickling over you. When she did the dishes, she was wearing gloves. So once she found out, oh, it's that feeling. That's why I don't like doing the bath. Putting a pair of gloves on solved it. So being able to share some hacks like that with the other mums. And then, yeah, some scheduling, like some self-care scheduling. And I know you can't create a routine with a baby, but creating some kind of routine. And we'll also be providing some information on external supports. So navigating your NDIS plan or knowing what you can advocate for in your next NDIS plan to get some more supports if it's, you know, cleaning or gardening or what questions to ask 
in your NDIS meeting. Oh, I mean, that's just honestly so mm. great to hear. I think this this kind of help is really needed and I had to get it through finding multiple individual practitioners that could help me with stuff and no one was there to navigate what to even look for. So the fact that you're pulling all these people together and also helping other autistic mothers connect and find community, it's really lovely. I just really hope that it goes well and that you know it becomes a widespread support Mm -hmm. for all autistic mothers that you know want the help or think that they could use it because there's just barely anything out there and it's really just not good enough in 2022 yes it needs to change and I'm so glad that people like you are willing to make it change because we need more health professionals putting energy towards this and trying to learn what my community wants and how to support us in a way that validates our identity and truly lets us thrive. Oh, 100%. Exactly. And so I've, I've left the group sessions as They are pre-planned sessions with evidence-based research in there and strategies and things, but also it just has a big open space for those discussions and I've allocated additional time to the sessions where if someone does want to share something that's happened within their week and then the group can discuss it together, then there is space for that. And if it means we miss out on something else later in the group, that's okay because if one mum can walk out of one session and feel just a little bit lighter and a little bit more understood and perhaps have one extra thing in their toolkit, then that's amazing. And then the hope is at the end of the group, after the 10 weeks, they can stay in contact if they want to or they can join a Facebook group together so they can keep helping each other through those things. Yeah, and stay connected and doesn't just end at the end of the group. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like the idea of having the planned sessions because it takes the pressure off to talk for the whole time. You know, mother's groups are so unstructured and, I mean, that's not exactly fun to work yourself up to not knowing what you're going to be doing for the next hour with people that you don't know very well. So I kind of like that, but also giving the space to talk as well. I mean, some neurodivergent people might enjoy the spontaneity of chatting for an hour and not knowing what they're in for, but it's not my cup of tea. But yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, and also just, you know, being in your own environment and feeling comfortable and yes, exactly. and just not worry about the extra spoons that a neurotypical mm-hmm. mother's group might take away, if it does. Yeah. Yeah, and so having all of those things going into the group and being able to how do I take something away from the group when I'm spending 90% of my energy just processing being here in the group? How do I have any capacity left? So when I was discussing the group with you and I was asking you what you thought would be uh, most beneficial for the community and I thought that hands-on would be the better approach and being able to do things together and in person. But then when you were mentioning about the online, taking away the fact of having to pack a bag, you don't have to drive, they don't have to park, don't have to calculate time of naps and things yeah so much more accessible exactly and you can turn your camera off if you're having a bad moment or you've had an explosion in the background or you're feeling upset about the toys that are around you even though it doesn't matter because we all have chaotic houses but yeah you can adjust the online world a little bit easier to be able to participate in a group and if that means that somebody accesses support whether they have their camera off the whole time and they're just speaking and listening or if they're just listening at least they're able to access at some capacity and they're getting some kind of help 
which I think is better than getting yeah no help. Yeah, definitely. So much more accessible. And yeah, I, I think even especially in COVID, you know, I know we're slowly getting more vaccinated and that sort of thing. But autistic people do have increased risk of chronic illness. So you know, the risk of getting COVID is it can be higher for this community. And mm-hmm. even if it's not, I guess some of us probably even have increased anxiety about getting COVID and germs and things that neurotypicals are currently dealing with as well. But, you know, it's just to a different extent or, yeah, I mean, there's so many reasons why doing this online is so much more accessible. But, you know, knowing my own journey and what those early weeks and months were like with endless naps and schedules and eat, feed, sleep, <laughs> repeat, like I trying to get me out of the house and organized to go anywhere and not have severe anxiety about it affecting my son's sleep or my own rest. Yeah, I, it's I think it's really good that you're you're doing it online. And I think that it's going to be helpful. And especially, I, I just think this kind of goes to show how critical it is for lived experience to be consulted and mm-hmm. to be included in, in this, in any process, you know, nothing about us without us. It, it's a hashtag for a reason. And that reason is so that our needs are met because unless you are one of us, you you can't truly understand all of our needs. Mm. And the other thing I was thinking about, which is, you know, one of my special interest areas is eating disorders. And, you know, there there is a much higher prevalence of eating disorders in autistic women. And pregnancy is such a huge part of that because the body goes through so much change and, you know, eating habits can severely change you know with for everything from morning sickness to sensory changes and more and and yeah and I guess when you are doing online sessions having that option to turn your camera off would be really helpful in case that's triggering for anyone but they can still be involved you know and it wouldn't be a barrier and I think that's really important Mm, that's really insightful that's a really good input actually and that's making me reflect on my own practice at the moment with since COVID has started and we've been doing some more telehealth services and I'm supporting a woman at the moment that we we have phone calls rather than telehealth sessions because she prefers to not be on camera and that's absolutely fine and I didn't even think of that from this perspective where some of the mums might want, not want to see their own reflection on camera, of course, or not want to see things in the background that they might start thinking about. I can see my washing in the background. I can see my dirty dishes. I can see and thinking about those rather than thinking about the group. That's really good input. I didn't think of that. Thank you. Oh, no worries. <laughs> Always happy to share. I love how open you are to learning this stuff and I I just think it's so important to keep this dialogue open and to get more health professionals actually listening to autistic individuals because we know our needs best. I mean, the other thing I struggle with with online um, meetings is when I can see my own reflection irrelevant to eating disorders, I get distracted by it easily or I catch myself and, you know, see whether I'm responding so like appropriately so sometimes it actually makes me mask more because I'm so aware of it yeah there's so many reasons why that would be a helpful choice an accessible choice to neurodivergent individuals or anyone really you know universal design exactly I think that I'm going to gain a lot out of these groups myself you know I I know people say you can be an expert in autism but I know I've heard you say it before that you um the people with autism are the experts in autism so I might work in the field where I'm definitely not an expert in autism um, 
And so I think from the groups, I will learn a lot and I'll be able to adapt them for following groups or even for following sessions as well from what I learn from the women. And that's what I'm hoping as well to get out of it is to gain some more of that lived experience to be able to tailor the sessions appropriately. Yes, absolutely. I say that all the time. Autistic people are the experts in autism. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely. It's, and it's so important to acknowledge that. And mm-hmm. I think that the health professionals and academics who are starting to acknowledge the importance of lived mm-hmm. experience, they're the ones that are, are really making leaps and bounds and helping the world. Because if you ignore lived experience, then you're just doing harm. Mm. And, you know, I know you're not a doctor, you're an OT, but Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. That's a health professional-wide thing, and and I don't Mm -hmm. think many people get into the health profession wanting to do harm. I think most of them really just want to help people, and we want to be helped. Mm. So we need people to listen to us and care about us, like OTs like you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Oh, that's so kind. Thank you. It's definitely, I think we work with such an amazing team, and the other OTs in our our team are amazing as well, and we are... um, definitely neurodiverse affirming and yeah trying to just listen and understand more and we're all learning new things every day and I think that's the the great thing about especially the OT field we can change you know I can be working with a four-year-old and then supporting a 34-year-old in the same day and so we are we are so adaptable and always willing to learn so I think I'm yeah not not ashamed at all to say I've known about this this area for you know a year since I've started researching um, <laughs> what it's like to be an autistic mum. So it's something that's new to me. I can obviously speak to the the parenting side of it, um, but yeah, I'm new to the research there, to the little research that there is, and I think it's really exciting that the OT role is still just emerging so we can make it what we want and that can be based on what the community wants and what these women want and so hopefully I can grow something from this and um, put together some more ASD friendly resources for mums I think that's definitely something that's that's needed I don't know if you found anything I know you said you've done lots of research and you're really into that but did you find anything helpful about play skills or about um, routines or you know awake windows and things that found were autistic friendly resources uh yeah I mean (laughs) there no (laughs) there Mm. there was nothing specifically uh for autistic mothers out there which is why we're doing this right because we need to make it (laughs) um well I mean there is a little bit but nowhere near enough and you have to really dig for it but some of the things that I guess weren't specific to autistic mums but I found really helpful as an autistic mum were things like wake windows I really struggled to read the cues of my son I it's much better now that he's over one but the first year I was just felt clueless I'm like mm. people must be lying like because he he does all of the signs like rubbing his eyes pulling his ears and yes all the fussy signs that he's ready for sleep all the time like it just wasn't working so I pretty much stuck to wake windows and we were lucky because it worked with our son he was very very on the clock but yeah no I think a lot of the things that I did with my own OT mm. were things like getting noise cancelling headphones and Mm -hmm. earplugs because I'm very sound sensory overstimulated so that was a big deal when my son would cry especially when he was really young because when he was hungry it was like screeching as most babies are and (laughs) 
It's very, very difficult to handle when you're low on sleep and already have sensory sensitivities. But, you know, the things that really helped were I got a home organizer in and she helped me Mm. a lot with my executive function and giving places homes and working out systems and all the things that seem really small but add up. And when you're in the thick of it and being a new parent and learning all this new stuff and Mm -hmm. learning how this new human works, Mm. those sort of things really, really come in handy. And that's sort of why I say that I feel very lucky because I absolutely think I would have had full-blown postnatal anxiety and depression had I not have, one, understood my neurodivergence, but also had access to all the information that I did have access to and and the help that I did have because it, it really helped. It really helped. And I think it is really about figuring out what your neurodivergent traits are and what are your what's your sensory profile, how's your introception, do you need help you know, around the house or with meal prep or that sort of thing. And that's where I think NDIS comes in and where hopefully you guys can play a part in helping these mums figure yes. out how to navigate that because it is mm-hmm. it is not easy. Mm. And even just knowing where to look for that information as well. My husband and I were the same. We followed awake windows because both of us like to have We didn't want to get stuck into a routine, but we wanted to know just roughly when to start looking for the signs. And we found it helpful that, okay, it's about an hour and a half. Let's start looking for the signs now. And then you would just start to learn the signs. And a month later, they were different and they had changed. And so, so infuriating. So at least the awake windows were pretty spot on with the ages we found as well. So we, yeah, we use that as well. Lifesaver. Oh my God. Yeah. Such a lifesaver. Such a lifesaver. But yeah, I I think, you know, and we've mostly focused on postpartum, but there's also so much, so much work that needs to be done in the prenatal health supports for women as well. Uh, I had to do a lot of advocacy work on my own behalf going through the public health system and they had no idea, no idea how to support an autistic mother or where to start or like, and, you know, I I laugh because... (laughs) What do you do if you don't laugh? But it just makes me sad because there's so many women. There's so many women that don't have the privilege that I have, whether that's, you know, my education or or my financial security or having a safe, supportive partner or whatever. There's so many autistic women that aren't able to advocate for themselves and when these systems aren't even set up to try to meet that basic need of disability support yeah that that's just that's not okay and we have a lot to do in the pregnancy space and pregnancy birth and postnatal all of it it's just yeah it's not like being an autistic mother is a new thing you know we <laughs> We've been around for a long time. We just haven't been identified and we're figuring it out. We're learning of our neurodivergence and that in turn is helping empower us to have our needs met and get the right support like all humans deserve, but is a disability human right. But yeah, we definitely need more tailored autistic friendly parenting resources and maternity support. 100%. Yeah, that's what I think too. Yes, and for for both of them as well to go through some supports. I think that that's a whole. Once I get this started, then let me tackle the pregnancy and birth. But I would love to get into that as well. Yeah, I think pregnancy and birth, and you know, people talk about 
a birth plan and things like that. But I think about what could birth look like for someone who was able to advocate for their needs in the hospital environment if they were to have a, we work with speech pathologists that assist people with AAC, if they were to have access to something else when they're giving birth and they're unable to verbalise what they're wanting. Is there another communication method they can take into hospital or is there an option to say, I don't want to be have that many examinations because if I was to have that many examinations, then my tactile input is through the roof before I've even had the baby. Um, oh, my gosh, yes. So needed. This literally happened to me where I was trying to tell an OBGYN that I didn't want the balloon and he completely dismissed it, which gave me absolutely no faith that he would listen to me in childbirth. <laughs> and this was well before that time. This is very important. Our sensory needs and trauma need to be respected 100%. Yeah, exactly. So I think the pregnancy and birth of could have a lot of a lot more help in it as well. And I just remembered something else really positive I read when I was researching. You said about reading the the cues was really challenging, and I found some research was saying mums were saying absolutely like reading the social cues is really challenging. And I read something really beautiful that one mum said. I'll quote it wrong, but she said, I can tell the difference between people's sets of keys when they're walking into the room and I know who it is coming into the room based on their keys. So she said, I can tell what my baby's cry is because I have this amazing skill. Yeah, and so I found a few really positive stories like that of um, they were expected to be struggling to read their baby's social cues, but she actually said, actually, no, I can tell who's coming in the room based on a set of keys. So I am perfect at knowing my baby's cries. I thought that was really, really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. And I love that example because it just shows how different we all are and, you know, that we all have such different skills and such different support needs. And so you just can't assume that all autistic people are the same or even slightly similar because it can be literally opposite. Mm -hmm. That is awesome. And, and yeah, I've heard some autistic mothers can just read their baby, not through the baby cues that we're taught about, but through just... I don't even know because I'm not one of them, but I hear that it's a thing and I wish I was. <laughs> but wait windows were my life <laughs> and that's okay. And that's that's the message, right? It's all okay. There is literally nothing wrong with who we are. And the fact that we're labeled as a disorder is really just the reflection of the values held by neurotypicals. And actually, some of our so-called deficits happen to be our biggest strengths. Like um, my mum, for example, has very sensitive taste, which can make eating difficult because things that wouldn't bother most people, like if your coffee was too hot or too cold, would greatly affect my mother's experience. I'm similar in that way. But, and this is a ridiculous example, but it's just what's coming to mind. Uh, you know, when she was in her 20s, my dad and her did a wine tasting competition and you had to taste like 20 different wines and she was the only one that got every single one correct and she didn't even like most of them. I don't even think she drank red wine back then, but she had such a sensitive taste profile that she could tell the difference. Now, you know, give her a job as a smelly air and she was killing it at life that's amazing caveat my mother did not become a smellier she was a nurse and a midwife but would have been a great career choice 
I share this because I think it's really important to know what light your neurodivergent traits are being viewed in. And it's also important to know that with you know, small tweaks to your environment, you can really thrive. With my hearing issues in the baby, when they first started, they were horrific. And it really only took a couple little tweaks to make it a non-issue, like putting a hook by the change table in his room so that middle of the night nappy changes or feeds, I could quickly put the headphones in and I wouldn't be so stressed. I could enjoy that those small moments, you know, that are fleeting. And then it became an issue because in the daytime, we'd change him at the other end of the house. And then it was just a matter of getting some kind of ear defenders down that end, (laughs) because there's no way my executive function could manage going back and forth just to get my headphones. But yeah, like these things, I think I like looking at it from the angle of how do we help fix the environment? Because you don't fix an autistic person. We're not broken. The only reason we need help is because this world is not made to support us. Just like if everyone was in a wheelchair, then people in wheelchairs wouldn't be considered disabled because the world would be made for them, you know? Yeah, and I think, yeah, what you were saying, it sounds um, a lot like a, like a framework of uh, a model we use called the PEO model. It looks at to do a task. You look at the person, the environment and the occupation. Um, yeah, so looking at like the task of like getting your getting your baby dressed, for example, and so you would look at the person's um, capacity, the what the environment setup is, and the actual task itself. And I was listening to the Neurodivergent Women podcast the other day, and they were talking about the difference between capacity and skill set, and they were saying how a mum may not they may have the skills to be able to dress their baby. Absolutely, they can put a pair of pants on. But then their capacity within that moment, if there is screaming, if there is poo everywhere, if they have had, you know, breakfast has been thrown on them or all these things that have happened, it makes the occupation a lot harder. So how can we look at what aspect of that task is it that's challenging and providing the the support there? And I think as well, to say to you as well, as from what I've heard from you and what I've read about other autistic mums, the extra mile you're going to to provide the best care for your child and I think doing the most amount of self-work than what other mums, uh, the neurotypical mums may do, you're doing so much research, you're looking into the best possible ways, you're doing so much self-work and self-awareness and I think that's a huge, huge skill as well that autistic mums do go the extra mile and, yeah, looking to provide the best possible care your child oh thank you (laughs) yeah I think I'm an all right mom Uh, I guess that actually reminds me um of something that uh, I've I've spoke I speak to a lot of autistic moms and including a couple that are going through legal proceedings and having their partners or their partner's lawyers use that they're autistic against them, which is just absurd and so discriminatory. I can't believe that this exists and I feel like so mad about it and so privileged that going through my birth and my perinatal period, I never had to think about holding back any problems that I had because I didn't have that fear of dealing with a partner that wasn't supportive or trying to use things against me or even feeling like it could happen in the future, uh, it's it's a horrible way to feel. I, I went I went through a lawsuit years ago with the third party insurer of the guy who hit me in my early twenties, and mm. I remember 
when I was at my absolute lowest and I, I had, I had had to quit my job and I took six months to find a new one and I was so depressed and so, so low and I'd spent so much money on makeup, which was my special interest of the day. And I Mm. had put like, I tried to convince myself that I wasn't wasting time or money. And so I, I started just for fun to say I was a makeup artist, which I was absolutely not. But I sort of taught myself through YouTube and <laughs> I did a couple of girlfriends' faces and very quickly realized that that was not going to work for me because I had a really bad right wrist and shoulder and neck. And mm-hmm. even though I really enjoyed doing their makeup, it would literally put me in bed for like two days <laughs> in agony. But the lawyers representing the third party insurer spoke to my lawyer and I'm laughing because this is so ridiculous and spoke to my lawyer and said that I was clearly lying and that I was totally fine because they stalked me on social media and you know my bad for having a public profile which I'd only done temporarily because of this fake (laughs) makeup business Mm -hmm. that I was convincing myself I was doing to feel worthy in a in a capitalist society but I was so shocked because I'm like, social media is such a lie. People can look so happy. I mean, look at Robin Williams. Mm. He is one of the happiest, funniest guys in the world. And no one knew how badly he struggled with his mental health. So, yeah, I, I, I say that because I do. I feel very deeply for any autistic or neurodivergent person that has to deal with feeling like they're going to be judged for their neurodivergence or if it could be used against them because that is just really wrong yeah it is and that that is so sad and I think that could go for the whole neurodivergent community of anyone feeling as though they their diagnosis would be used against them yeah or be yeah they're perceived in a different way of their ability to parent based on their diagnosis and that there's a lower expectation of them where in fact it doesn't and they can be and are brilliant parents yeah, they absolutely are. And it's just, yeah, I can't believe that that's even a thing. I suppose we should wrap up and I've really enjoyed talking to you for my last question. It's a very important one. How are we going to make this autistic mums group um, go nationwide or even global? We need we need this stuff everywhere. Let's wrap it up and and spread the news. We need this stuff. We need more support everywhere. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) Oh, hopefully after the first group, if we get enough participants and run the group and we can learn a lot and tailor it perfectly and get it out there. And I think it can be advertised to hospitals so that women, autistic women are sent home from hospital with a referral to the group so they know it exists, they know there's help out there. And I think more... um, online support groups and women knowing how to access i know you've got a group you created for um autistic and adhd mums um yeah just knowing more about online groups yeah and talking about it more and podcasts like this and podcasts like the neurodivergent women podcast and just making people aware of that and and like the government groups that are running the the mums groups some upskilling for them as well on how to perhaps flag these things or if they do have a woman come through who's autistic if they're not skilled in the area being okay with referring them somewhere else so they are getting appropriate care and the right support 
I think if there was someone really clever that could make an assessment, a functional capacity assessment for how an autistic mum is coping, that would be amazing. So if there's any really fancy, clever people out there that can create an assessment tool, that would be brilliant. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. We could all use a bit of help figuring out our support needs, I guess. Thank you so much for coming on today, Claudia, and and thank you for caring so much and trying to help autistic mothers. I feel so lucky that you had a kid when you did (laughs) alongside that beautiful mum and that you've been able to witness a taste of our lives firsthand. And I'm my fingers and toes are crossed that all goes well with this course. And yeah, I really I look forward to hearing how how women like it and ensuring their lived experience is listened to and valued. And I have no doubt you're well placed to do that. No, it's it's been great. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been such an honour just to be able to be a part of this community and to, yeah, be able to do something to help, even if it's one woman that feels like she's related to this story or if it's someone that joins the group that feels like it was a little bit helpful, then at least I know I've I've done, yeah, done something and that someone else has felt less alone and more, more supported. A huge thank you to Claudia for coming on the show today. We had some really important conversations and I think this is a great example of people from very different worlds with very different experiences coming together to help a community and I really hope that it gives you the inspiration and the courage to try and have the hard conversations because it it isn't on us it isn't our responsibility to educate anyone on our disability but at the same time who else is going to do it and I personally believe that no one is better at advocating for our neurodivergent family than those of us who are neurodivergent. Lived experience is expertise and it needs to be valued for what it is. And we are starting to see that more and more in all areas. So if you have an autistic mother friend or are one yourself, I would definitely recommend looking into this program mostly because there's nothing else out there, but also because I really do hope that it does good things for our community. And I would love to hear your feedback. If you do go on it, please reach out. Let me know how it was. Um, I'm hoping Claudia keeps me in the loop and I can report back on how the first program went because we're all invested in this, right? Mothers, grandmothers, daughters, brothers, husbands, we all want support in having a family and living our life. And so anyone who's willing to try and do that is okay by me. And I had fun talking to Claudia, so that was great. (laughs) But stay tuned because next week I've got some more very interesting conversations coming and a shout out to our first two patrons, which is very exciting. We have one brand new Queen P and one new VIP. So exciting. Yes, I am a DAG. Deal with it. If you guys 
want to support the show, please head over to Patreon. I'll leave the link in the show notes. There are two membership tiers. We've got the Queen Peas for $4 a month or the VIPs. That's right. Very important peas because, you know, princess and the pea theme people for $15 a month, which is basically a coffee a week. Any support you can give would be more than welcome. I am keen to get more support on board so we can keep churning out this awesome content for our beautifully diverse community. And if there's anything you want to see on the show, we're already starting to record season two, which is very exciting. And I am just so thrilled that there are so many of you out there that are just as desperate as I am to have these important conversations. And I'm so grateful for your support. So head over to our socials and reach out, share your stories, share your work, let me know what you want to hear on the show, and I'll do it. If you're new here, I created this podcast as a platform to talk to incredible neurodivergent humans and our allies about how we show up in the world and how we can make a more neuroinclusive society. I only found out about my own neurodivergence at the age of 28 years old, a few years ago now. Before then, I'd spent years trying to understand myself and trying to fix the parts of me that felt broken. Growing up, I was labelled too sensitive, too dramatic, too loud, too bossy, and I am all those things. But so what? Why are they considered so bad? Discovering my neurodivergence was initially a shock, and when trying to understand it from a deficit-based medical perspective that was highly stereotyped of a male external presentation, things didn't really make sense. It wasn't until I stumbled across the neurodivergent community on social media and learned all about the social model of disability when I finally made sense of it all. Now I like to help others do the same. Don't forget to head over to our socials and connect at princessinthep.pod and join our Facebook community group to chat more about the show. If you enjoyed this content and want more like it, please leave us a review and share with your friends, family, colleagues and more. It helps a lot. Also, a quick shout out to reaching almost 2,000 downloads in less than two months. I am so happy that you're all enjoying these chats as much as I am. We have the best neurodivergent community. Princess in the Pea is proudly sponsored by my consulting company, Neurodivergent Millennial, leading the way for neurodiversity inclusion in the 21st century. Isn't that inspiring? Stay tuned for our next episode talking to the wonderful Natalie Phillips Mason, who is head of change at Officeworks, one of my favorite shops for any of you fellow stationary nerds out there like me. Natalie is passionate about neurodiversity and another one of our neurotypical allies that wants to help us on this path to true inclusion in a world that needs us. Can't wait. I hope you enjoy. Enjoy.